Well, we have been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts. And typically, we simply look at whatever passage comes next in the book. But this Sunday is something of a special occasion in that it is Kevin and Beth Godin's last Sunday with us before they focus their full attention on Michigan. I believe they closed on the house this past week. And as Caitlin mentioned, they will be starting the service as the the, the new church there, Redeeming Grace Church of Southgate, next Sunday. And so we just wanted to do something of a sending off service for them this week. And so I thought, in light of that, it would be good if we skipped ahead a couple of chapters in the book of Acts and looked at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. We'll circle back around the next couple of weeks and look at the two passages we're skipping. But for this week, Acts 13 just seemed to be the right passage for this occasion. But before we dive into that, let's pray. Lord, we are immensely grateful that as we just sung, Lord, our, we, we have a source of identity as Christians, a source of worth that's not dependent on how things are going, on how successful we are in our careers or how much money we accumulate or, or uh, our physical looks or anything of the nature, Lord. Our worth is not found in any of those fleeting things of this world, but in Jesus and Him alone. Lord, what a wonderful thing. We don't have to be searching for our identity as there are so many in this world doing. We have an identity in Christ that surpasses everything else. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your word that we have before us. We pray that as we take a look at these three verses, that you would give us insight, Lord. Help us to not just read this, not just have a a basic understanding of what it's saying according to the rules of grammar, but Lord, I pray that we would have a true spiritual insight into these things, that you would cause these truths to resonate within us and to change us from the inside out. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The theologian A.W. Tozer famously stated that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So how do you picture God? You know, I think a lot of people have this view of God where he's a lot like a retired grandfather who's just sort of hanging out up there in heaven. Uh, I do a lot of my work these days in uh, different Paneras around town. And one thing I've noticed is that in all these Paneras, there's this group of older guys that come in there for a few hours each morning. And they just shoot the breeze, right? Uh, The distinct impression I get from them is that, you know, they don't really have much pressing business to take care of in their lives. And so they just kind of like to putz around town and maybe run a few errands here and there to keep busy and spend a few hours each morning just talking with each other over coffee. And I think a lot of people have a similar view of God, that he's just up there hanging out and enjoying his heavenly existence. And 
Of course, he's also often willing to lend a helping hand to us many times since he has nothing better to do. But he doesn't really have any larger goals for this world. However, if you read the Bible, that's not at all the biblical picture of God. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible pictures God as being on a mission. And that mission is to make himself known and worshipped throughout all the world. This mission is expressed quite well in Habakkuk 2.14, where it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's God's mission. He wants everyone everywhere to see His glory and worship Him and experience the joy found only in Him. And in His grace, God uses people to accomplish that purpose. He gives us the privilege of spreading everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. And here in Acts 13, 1 through 3, we see God leading the church to do that in an especially deliberate way. Look again at what it says. Now that we're in the church of Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now understand that this passage here marks a major turning point in Acts. Up to this point, the narrative has been primarily focused, uh, actually almost exclusively, on Peter and various missions efforts in Jerusalem and the surrounding region. However, the focus now shifts to Paul and his associates as they seek to make the gospel known throughout the rest of the Roman world. Also, we see mentioned in this passage a church, the Church of Antioch, which, as you can see up here, is located a good bit to the north of Jerusalem and the other cities that we've encountered in Acts so far. We also get some very helpful background information about the Church of Antioch in one of the passages that we skipped over in order to get where we are. Acts 11, 19 through 26. This passage records how the church of Antioch came into being. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution, right, the persecution that happened in Acts 8, that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is the Gentiles also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. 
So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So that's how the church of Antioch was formed and what had happened so far in that church's brief history. And returning to Acts 13, verse 1, we see mention of two kinds of leaders in the church of Antioch. Prophets and teachers. Uh, prophets were people in the church who would receive revelations from God. And uh, as we see numerous times in the book of Acts, these revelations weren't doctrinal in nature, but were rather practical in nature. They were practical revelations. So doctrinal revelations containing doctrinal and theological content were given exclusively to apostles, whereas these practical revelations containing timely insights and guidance were given to prophets. And so the prophets had the, the responsibility of receiving these timely insights and guidance from God and then reporting them to the rest of the church. And then the second kind of leader mentioned here, the teachers, well, they had the responsibility not of receiving new revelation, but of explaining existing revelation. They sought to help people come to a clearer understanding of biblical truth. And of the five leaders mentioned here in verse 1, only two of them have come up before. Barnabas and, of course, Saul. <laughs> uh, Saul has already been prominently featured in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, for his conversion on the road to Damascus. And so he likely needs no introduction. He's also the same as Paul. That was his Roman name, Paul. And he's the focus of the entire rest of the book of Acts. And then Barnabas also has been mentioned several times. It was Barnabas, if you uh, remember from Acts 11 that I just read, who was sent by the church uh, of Jerusalem to investigate reports about Gentile converts in Antioch, indicating that he was a notable and trusted leader in the church. It was also uh, Barnabas, who a few chapters before that was the one who had uh, introduced Saul to the rest of the Jerusalem church and basically assured them that you know, Saul wasn't persecuting Christians any longer. He wasn't out for their blood anymore. And that it was also uh, Barnabas who we saw in Acts 11 uh, went and got Saul to guide him through some of his early ministry experiences. And so Barnabas and Saul are especially prominent as leaders of the church. Uh, the other guys, not really that much. Uh, the, the, the two of the other guys mentioned in the verse, uh, Lucius and Menaean, were uh, they don't show up at all outside of this verse. So this is literally all we know about them. And then Simeon only receives one passing mention a couple of chapters later. So all that to say that the spotlight here is very much on Barnabas and Saul. And that's going to be very important because, as we'll see, they were the ones chosen in a special way by the Holy Spirit to spearhead a new missions endeavor. And that actually brings us to the main idea that we see in these verses. That the Holy Spirit initiated the church's first organized missionary outreach. 
the Holy Spirit initiated the church's first organized missionary outreach. That's what happens in these three verses. Because up to this point, the gospel has been relatively confined geographically to the region around Judea. Also, it's spread not because of some proactive or organized missionary outreach, but simply as a result of Christians being persecuted. We saw back in Acts 8 how the church of Jerusalem was persecuted pretty severely with the result that many of them fled Jerusalem, taking the gospel with them wherever they went. So that's how the church of Antioch was formed and how things have been progressing so far. But now, here in Acts 13, we see a much more proactive and organized missionary outreach. And as we look at these verses, we see two requirements for faithful engagement in missions endeavors. And we'll spend the rest of our time this morning talking about these two things. Sensitivity to the Spirit and readiness to sacrifice. So first, sensitivity to the Spirit. Verse 2 states that it was while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting that the Holy Spirit spoke to them. It's not entirely clear whether if this gathering for worship and fasting was a gathering of the whole church or if it was just a gathering of the church's leaders. But uh, you know, commentators differ on that point. But regardless, these were Christians who were very much oriented toward God and therefore sensitive to the leading of His Spirit. And let's not read too quickly over the fact that they were fasting. Uh, fasting was a key practice in the early church, but isn't typically, in my experience at least, uh, spoken of very much these days. So I would like to kind of drill down uh, on this idea of fasting and uh, just briefly give you an overview of the practice of fasting as we see it in the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament. So even though we're never directly commanded to fast, Jesus does assume that his disciples will fast in Matthew 9.15. And if we're going to fast in a way that pleases God and actually accomplishes something, then we have to understand what fasting is all about and what its purposes are. Because I don't know about you guys, but I'll just say I like food, all right? You might not, that might not be obvious since I'm blessed with a high metabolism, I guess, but I actually like food a lot. And so if I'm going to go without food for, you know, a, a period of time, then I really need to know why I'm doing that, right? I don't want to just subject myself to, to some, this ordeal without having a clear sense of purpose for doing so. And so maybe... Uh, I assume most of us feel the same way. And of course, we want to glorify God in our fasting by doing it the right way. So here are four purposes of fasting. First, uh, we fast in order to communicate to God how much we long for Him. Fasting is like saying, God, I want you more than I want food. 
And as we fast with that mentality, we worship God by expressing the depth of our desire for Him in a very visible way. Also, we fast in order to practice preferring God to His gifts. So often it's not bad things that keep us from God, but rather good things that we enjoy too much. We enjoy God's gifts so much that we often forget about the one who gave us those gifts. But when we fast, we get much needed practice preferring God above everything. As often as the thought of food enters our mind, we get to choose God all over again. And hopefully the more practice we get, the more of a habit it'll become. And then third, we fast in order to confess our emptiness and our need with the expectation that God will put his glory on display by meeting that need. Essentially, we give God occasion to show forth his glory by helping the helpless and by meeting the needs of the needy. And when God sees such an occasion, he acts. And then finally, we fast to add intensity to our prayers. We're demonstrating how deeply we yearn for our prayers to be answered and, and communicating our utter desperation for God to move. And this glorifies God by showing that we really believe prayer is a powerful thing, that we're not just going through the motions, right? But that we really believe God is both able and willing to answer our prayers. So as you can see from all four of these items, biblical fasting is very much tied prayer. It's not something we do for dietary or health reasons. All of the purposes for fasting are, are spiritually oriented purposes in the Bible and are connected in various ways to prayer. And so hopefully all of this is an encouragement for us to practice fasting as often as the Lord leads us to do. Of course, like I said, there's no specific biblical requirement or uh, requirement for a specific frequency of fasting. But here's a question for you. If you're never uh, or hardly ever burdened enough for something related to God or to God's mission in this world, to go without food for even a brief period of time. What does that say about your heart? Is your heart really in line with God's heart? If our hearts really are in line with God's heart, then I would think we would yearn so deeply to see God move in various ways that we would find ourselves fasting more than many of us uh, probably do. And returning to Acts 13 here, we see that it was as these Christians were fasting that God made his will known to them. Again, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Now, the way that the Holy Spirit spoke to these Christians was most likely through one of the prophets. 
However, I believe this verse reveals an important principle for all of us when it comes to hearing from God. If you want to hear from God and have an understanding of God's will for the various situations you encounter in life, then the way to do that is, well, exactly what we see these Christians in Antioch doing. Simply seeking closeness to God. Right? Nothing mystical about it. You don't have to go all over the place looking for these obscure signs or spend endless hours trying to interpret mysterious dreams. Instead, simply focus on cultivating a closer relationship with God through things like worship and, and, and prayer and fasting like we see in verse 2, as well as through other habits commended in Scripture, such as studying the Bible. And that will put you in a position to hear from God. Your mind will be saturated with biblical principles for living and your heart will be shaped to be in line with God's heart. And if you're doing that, ultimately, you can trust that if God has something to tell you or show you, then he'll make that clear to you. You know, my, my confidence isn't in my ability to understand God's will or to decipher it through these, these little signs. It's my confidence is ultimately in God to make his will clear to me. You see, God doesn't play games with us. Right? He, he's not entertained by seeing us try to figure out his will like we'd approach some kind of murder mystery game. If we're simply seeking closeness to him, like these Christians in Antioch, then we have every reason to believe God will make his will abundantly clear to us. And if we don't receive clear guidance from God about a, a specific area of life, then that means we have liberty in that area to do as we desire in accordance with biblical boundaries. So our role is simply to cultivate a heart that's sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Like we see the Christians of Antioch doing in verse 2. That's step one to being faithful in missions endeavors. If you're going to be faithful, you need to cultivate a heart that's sensitive to wherever God might lead you to go, whomever he might lead you to talk to, and whatever he might lead you to say. Then in addition to cultivating a uh, sensitivity to the Spirit, we also need a readiness to sacrifice. That's the second requirement if we're going to be faithful in missions endeavors. A readiness to sacrifice. Basically, having heard from God, we need to be prepared to do what God says, no matter how challenging it might be. Here in Acts 13, God told these Christians, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Can you imagine what it must have been like for these early Christians to hear that? Because remember, Barnabas and Saul were the two most prominent leaders in this church. They were the most gifted, the most anointed, and the most influential leaders that church had. And now, God tells them that those two guys, Barnabas and Saul, have to go. I mean, do you think that just maybe that might have been a hard pill for the church to swallow? 
I mean, for God to call even one of these two guys away would have been difficult enough. But both of them? Like, are you kidding me? And yet, the Christians of Antioch were obedient. As verse 3 says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And their best two guys sent off for the sake of the gospel. And you know what that shows us? It shows us that the mission we've been given of telling the world about Jesus takes priority over everything. It takes priority over our comfort. It takes priority over our preferences. It takes priority over everything. And hopefully that's the way our church is oriented as well. Where our hearts are preoccupied first and foremost, not, not with our comfort or with our preferences, but with God and His kingdom and His glory in this world and the mission He's given us of reaching people with the gospel. Oh, that our church would never turn into some kind of country club would always be a center for missionary mobilization. You know, growing up, my family liked to go on a lot of camping trips in the mountains. And I'm talking about real camping here, right? For, for me, tent camping is redundant, right? That's the only kind of camping there is. And so we, we had the tents, we cooked our food over the fire, and... Uh, it was a, a very, a lot of good memories. And I remember on a lot of these trips, we would also take our canoe to go uh, canoeing in some of the mountain rivers in the various areas we went to. Uh, we would always look for a river that had a few good rapids, but also some good spots where the, the water was calm and we could go fishing. And I remember to the side of a lot of these mountain rivers, there would be these uh, smaller pools of water in the, the depressions of the rocks. And quite honestly, these pools were disgusting. I mean, they were green, they smelled funny, and I, I'm pretty sure the only thing growing in there was mosquitoes, right? We, we knew better than to do any fishing in those pools. And the reason they were so stagnant is because they had water coming into them, but not water flowing out of them. And so as a result, the, the water just kind of sat there as all kinds of yucky stuff <laughs> grew in it. That's the, the scientific term for it, by the way, the yucky stuff. And so in order for it to be healthy, it's necessary for a body of water to not only have water flowing into it, but also water flowing out of it. And it works the same way with Christians and with churches. Even though it might be easy at times to drift toward more of an inward focus and just get settled in and comfortable with the way things are and the, the people who are already involved, that's actually quite hazardous to our spiritual health. Because eventually we'll become like one of those stagnant pools of water, deprived of a fresh filling of God's Spirit because we're not being faithful in the mission he's given us. The fact is that God calls us to be a missionary congregation. 
And as we see here in Acts 13, that requires sacrifice. Now, that doesn't mean that every single one of us has to pack up our bags and move to the other side of the world as a cross-cultural missionary. Uh, remember that there were only two people in the church of Antioch who God called to that kind of ministry. However, the rest of us are called to support that effort. Uh, William Carey, who's often called the father of the modern missions movement, once said this to an associate of his named Andrew Fuller. I will go down into the pit if you will hold the rope. Carey said that right before he left in 1793 to be a missionary in India, which was obviously not a very safe place during that, uh, that year. He said, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the rope. So even if we're not called to go down into the pit ourselves, we are called to hold the rope for those who do go down. And the way we do that is primarily two ways, through our praying and through our giving. So for example, our church, typically in our mission moment, we will pray on Sunday morning for a missionary serving international. And then we will also, once a month on the weekly announcements email, we'll send out a printable PDF prayer poster for families in the church who desire to pray on their own for the missionary that we're highlighting that month. And then also our church uh, tithes all of the money we take in. So 10% of all of the money we receive in this church goes outside of this church beyond Pittsburgh to help those who are serving as inter missionaries international. And so that's how we hold the ropes. And also, I'm sure I don't need to remind you if you're a regular around here, that even if many of us aren't called to be uh, missionaries internationally, we are certainly called to be missionaries locally. So that means intentionally building relationships with people around us and praying for them very faithfully every single day and also actively looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them. That's what a missionary lifestyle looks like. And even though the sacrifice required for that kind of lifestyle might not be quite as dramatic as it is for missionaries serving internationally, make no mistake, there's still sacrifice involved. Of course, there's also plenty of joy involved. In fact, I say that the joy is pervasive. But there is also sacrifice. Because embracing God's priorities for our life inevitably requires relinquishing our own priorities. That's what the Church of Antioch had to do, and that's what we have to do as well. And guys, my prayer, that I pray literally almost every single day, is that our church would be faithful to that. Because, I mean, just quite honestly, the need couldn't be more urgent. I know it's not very comfortable to think about or enjoyable to talk about, but 
Hell is a very real place. And every day, every single day, people are departing from this world without ever embracing the only one who can rescue them from such a horrible destiny. And the thing is that we have the message that can save them, right? We, we have the cure. His name's Jesus. I said, do you see how urgent this is? Do, do you see how sacrifice, true sacrifice, is a very warranted thing in this situation? I mean, this is, this is eternity that we're talking about. Even though many people have heard different things about Jesus, especially in America. I'm sure most people have heard something about Jesus. I'm not sure that most of them have heard the true biblical gospel, like accurate biblical teachings about Jesus. And like, for, for them, it's, they think of Jesus, they think maybe a great moral teacher who shared a lot of inspirational things, a lot, a lot of wise insights, but they have no clue why Jesus died on the cross, which is to pay for our sin. Right? Our sins deserved God's judgment. But Jesus stepped in in our place and endured the judgment we deserved when he died on that cross. He was our substitute. He paid the price for our sins. And it's only through Him that we can ever be made right with God. It doesn't matter how good of a person we try to be or how, how many good things we try to do for other people or how much money we give to charity or how nice of a person we try to live as. It's only through Jesus and Him alone that we can ever be made right with God. And most people, they've never experienced that. They, they don't have that hope for eternity. They, they've never repented of their sins and, and put their trust in Jesus to rescue them. Think about it like this. I know this is heavy, but I think it's important for us to think about. Consider just what it would be like to go home, maybe even do it. Go home this afternoon, and make a list of 100 people that you know. Um, even if you might not have 100 friends, but most of us probably have at least 100 acquaintances, names you can write down, and none of them from the church. 100 people who aren't a part of this church. Now, of that list of 100 people, just think, in 80 years, let's say, how many of those 100 people will most likely be in hell. Out of the 100 people on the list, how many of them will most likely be in hell by in the span of just 80 years? Again, guys, this is something that could not be more urgent. 
And yet we have the answer. We have the gospel. We know the Savior. And His name's Jesus. And hopefully we can be even more faithful knowing that our ultimate and highest motivation for reaching out in this way is Jesus Himself. Notice back in verse 2 how the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Did you catch that? For me. Our devotion should ultimately be devotion to Jesus. And our efforts should ultimately be expressions of love for Jesus. He wants us through His Spirit to be set apart for Him. It's His love that stirs our hearts. It's His worth that motivates our sacrifices. And it's His glory that drives our ambitions. Understand that this isn't just devotion to a cause. This is devotion to a person. That's what all of our efforts should come back to. And this morning, we have an opportunity to put what we see here in Acts 13 into practice as we send out uh, some of our very own for the sake of the gospel. Now, of course, this isn't exactly the same situation as what we see happening in Acts 13 with Barnabas and Saul, but there certainly are some very strong parallels. Uh, Kevin and Beth, as many of you know, have been an integral part of our church for several years. And Kevin, of course, uh, faithfully serving as a church elder. And I don't think it would be an overstatement to say that our church wouldn't be what it is today apart from their ministry. Um, and so you'll remember me saying that um, in Acts 13, they sent out their very best. Their two best guys sent out for the sake of the gospel. And that's honestly the way I feel about Kevin and Beth. And so this time I'll invite you guys to come up here. What a privilege it is for us to be able to send them out and support them. Um, one of the great comforts for me, you guys can come up on stage, is that God's fingerprints are just all over this transition. Um, I don't think we've received a prophetic word quite like we've seen in Acts 13, but the alignment of circumstances is just so perfect that I couldn't conceive how this couldn't be from God. And so what a privilege it is to be able to send you guys out uh, for the sake of the gospel in accordance with the call of God to uh, Southgate, Michigan. Uh, we do have here a, a token of our appreciation. Um, it, it says, thank you for the uh, ministry you have had and the impact you have made with their name and our name. And so please just accept this as just, a, a, again, a small reminder of uh, how much we love you guys and the, um, just the ministry you've had, the investment you have made in so many people. Um, I hope that every time you look at this, it can be a reminder for you of, of, that, of that impact. Um, and one of the things we see in verse 3 of Acts 13, it says that after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so 
I'm not going to invite everyone to come up here and uh, physically lay hands on Kevin and Beth. That would be a, a bit challenging logistically, but I actually would uh, like to invite everyone to stand to your feet at this time and uh, simply stretch out your hand. This is our way of laying hands. Just stretch your hand forward and um, symbolically just demonstrate your uh, devotion and, and the fact that we stand behind Kevin and Beth and we desire to support them in this ministry. And I will lay hands myself. So just like we see in Acts uh, chapter 13, let's pray over Kevin and Beth as they go out. Lord, we are grateful for your many gifts. One of your best gifts that you have given to our church is, humanly speaking, Kevin and Beth, Lord, that you have brought their family to redeeming grace. You have used them in such significant ways, Lord. There are people here who have been eternally impacted by their ministry, Lord. And, and what a joy it is to think of all of the, the, the impact they've had. And Lord, we pray that as much as of an impact they have had here in Pittsburgh, I pray that they would even have 10 times as much impact in Southgate, Michigan. Lord, I pray that you would bless Kevin's ministry there as the pastor of the church and that you would work through his efforts beyond even his wildest dreams. Lord, I pray that you would provide everything that they need. Lord, the associate pastor that they need. Uh, I pray that you would provide wisdom and some key decisions that are coming up for them. And Lord, that you would bless all of their efforts, Lord. I thank you for the way you've already doing that, how they already have, I believe, three, maybe even four people who are interested in baptism in Southgate. We praise God for that. Lord, I pray that that would just be the beginning of you opening up the floodgates of heaven and reaching people there in that community and blessing that church, Lord. So please work in them, Work through them, work all around them for the glory of your name. Lord, I pray that they would never forget, even perhaps on some of the more discouraging days, that we love them, that we stand behind them, we support them, Lord. I pray that they would feel our prayers and that you would, um, that you would just use them in a mighty way. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Absolutely.